23. Job chapter 23. I don't know if this is the first time that Tilia Jones has been among us, but it's the first time I've been in the same building with her. Praise God for a new little Jones among us. His mercies are new and wonderful. Job 23, let's read 8 through 10. Job was wondering where God is in his distress. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I can't perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit and that he works through the word. And we pray that there would be a holy wind blowing in this upper room tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you young people, I want you to imagine a day before email and before GPS. Mike, back in that day, receives a letter from his friend Bruce, whose family's spending a summer in a lovely cabin on a beautiful but secluded lake in the upper peninsula of Michigan. On opening the envelope, Mike finds an invitation to spend a weekend of relaxation with Bruce and his family. And there are directions in that handwritten letter. And they say this, After you cross the bridge at Mackinac, head east on Highway 2 and then north on 117 toward Newberry, and we have driven exactly 17.3 miles on 117, you'll see a red barn on You're right. Take a right there and head east for about 14 miles, and the road ends by leading you right up to our cabin. P.S. The Red Barn Road is merely a two-track wagon trail. So no matter how bumpy it gets, keep on going. Because last weekend, a friend of mine turned back after only a few miles of rough road assuming that he was lost. And so, upon arriving at the cabin days later, Mike reported to Bruce, you know, if if you wouldn't have added that P.S. about the bumpy roughness of the road, I'd have turned back myself. Now, the principle is this. The more thorough our knowledge of the intended road and its terrain, the more boldly and the more confidently we travel on that road. And as on Michigan roads, so it is in our spiritual journey. If we are to travel with boldness and confidence, we need a thorough knowledge of the intended road and its terrain. And the scriptures provide us with a a pilgrim's road map, describing many turns and terrains in our heavenward journey. So, So this hour, let's focus our eyes on an often neglected biblical P.S. that's in the Scripture. And when that P.S. is taken to heart, we can helpfully be spurred on our way to arrive at our lovely destination. And really, I'll be addressing this single question. Can this 
bumpy terrain that I'm experiencing now actually be a part of the normal Christian life? Can it really be? We want to address this in four main headings. Come on with me to the first of four, and that is, consider with me, the standard experience of Job. We see that right here in 8 and 9 of Job 23. The standard experience of Job. It says, behold, I go forward, but, but he's not there, and backward, but I can't perceive him. When he acts on the left, I can't behold him. He turns on the right, I can't see him. Just consider this standard experience of Job. We'll consider it in three elements. First, consider his rough road. Most of us here in these burgundy chairs know that Job drove his soul into a heart-withering calamity. Drove it into the darkest, stormiest of weather. Hard providence. In chapter 1, we're told that four messengers come to Job on a single day. First messenger comes and says, Job, the the, the Sabaeans, they they, they came and they raided and they took all 1,000 of your oxen, all 500 of your donkeys. He was the greatest man in the east and now he'd lost much. Then another messenger came, Job, fire came down from heaven and and burned up and consumed 7,000 of your sheep. And then he was still reeling, another messenger came, Job. The Chaldeans came, and they stole 3,000, all of your camels. And then the final fourth messenger came and said, Job, a tornado came, hit your house, it collapsed. All ten of your children are dead. But that wasn't the end of this dark storm that Job faced, because his skin, his bone, was also touched. It says in 2.7 that his body was plagued. He was smitten with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And there he is, scraping himself with pottery. In 120, it says he tears his robes. In 3.1, it says he curses the day that he was born. And so we see in 23. Eight, ah, behold, I go forward, God isn't there. Backward, I can't perceive him. He acts on the left, I can't behold him. Turns on the right. You see, he's in despairing perplexity. He's reeling. He's confused. There are some people in burgundy chairs who are in this kind of a whirlwind darkness. He doesn't understand why God is so treating him. He seeks answers But look, he can't find those answers. Look, it says 23.3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. He's looking for God. He can't find God. There's there's silence from God. Verse 8 says he goes forward, which means literally in the Hebrew, toward the rising sun in the east. Can't find him there. Backward, which means to the setting sun of the west. Uh, left, which means to the north, right, which means to the south. He's not there. I can't perceive him. I can't behold him. I can't see God. His soul is enveloped in darkness. He knows that God must be there, but he's got no felt perception of him. Ever have this happen? God has just experientially withdrawn. Job is left in a state of spiritual desolation. I've lost any sense of his 
nearness. My soul seeks God. Can't even get a glimpse of God's shadow. I think I see it in the right. No, he's not there in that order to the left. No. One commentator says he had lost all sense of divine favor as well as any consciousness of God's presence. In a phrase, he was deserted by God. So, so we're looking at the standard experience of Job. First, his rough road, but consider secondly in this standard experience, his spiritual integrity. Was God punishing Job because he was dabbling with some besetting sin? No. That's not why. We know the prologue. Job was blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. There was a test going on as Satan was saying that Job was a fake. You see, we're assured that God is not punishing Job or disciplining him for some specific sin, like he may have done for David when a sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah had taken place. That's not what's going on here. In fact, look at even chapter 23 of Job there, how accurate this is. Job says, my, my, 23.11, my foot has held fast to his path. I've kept his way. I've not turned aside. I've not departed from the command of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I've been faithful to the Lord. Why is this taking place? But, but he's feeling the sting of what could be called unrequited love. Interesting, my wife just called me yesterday and said that her mom, 91 years old, Helga, brought out of the attic over in Waterloo, Iowa, letters from the early 1950s that her husband, Arnold, who died just about three years ago, had written when Arnold, after World War II, had proposed to Helga. Helga went to New York City, and Arnold said, well, maybe someday I'll come to USA. And he was afraid of losing Helga. So he wrote to her, in German, typewritten without space, a letter every day for two years. There's a stack of these letters. There's love being expressed. But imagine if, if early on Helga responded back almost to all, but then weeks and maybe months went by, and, and Arnold felt the sting of unrequited love. And that's the way that Job felt. Job had been faithful to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. He'd seek God in his word. But all they got was a busy signal. He'd leave a message in the voicemail, never a call back from the Lord. He was a man of true love and integrity. He was a sincere believer. He'd been shunning evil. He'd been holding to the path of truth and righteousness with a clear conscience. Yet he was deserted with no sense of the presence of God. So we're looking at this standard experience of Job. We've seen his rough road, his spiritual integrity. But come on, thirdly, his model experience in this standard experience of Job. Job isn't alone in taking this stretch of bumpy road. It's not just a unique thing with him. that his experience is a model experience. Turn with me to James 5 and verse 10. It says there, as an example, that's the word hupodegma in the Greek, as an example or as a modern or as a, as a model or as a pattern of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those that blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing with him. So we see Job is presented as an example 
as a pattern. The trials of Job's faith is an anguishing model that we all end up imitating. Job had this cup that he had to drink, and it had really bitter ingredients. And the reality is for every one of the children of God, there is such a dark cup each must drink because he's a pattern of all our lives. Some cups are more potent than others. Yet we all will have this experience of suffering like Job. We will find ourselves on the terrain in our voyage to the Father's cabin, heavenly home, and we will find ourselves facing providential potholes and pressures, flames combined with soul anguish and confusion and abandonment. But we can be sure, like it says in verse 10, but he knows the way I take, and when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. In fact, James is really working, I think, on this, this very theme from, I think, Job 23. I shall come forth as gold. Even in the first chapter, when Matthew recently preached to us about, we are to count it all joy when we face trials and testings, for they shall make us, what? Perfect. Meaning, Gold. It's like 1 Peter 1 where it says, Rejoice when you encounter trials. These flames will make you as precious gold. Don't think these fiery ordeals you're going through, 4.12 of 1 Peter, are strange. Don't be surprised. And so we see that this experience of Job looking to God for light and direction and consolation, but not finding it, a God-fearing man at times walks in Job's darkness. And if you're there at this time, this is a standard experience. That's our first main heading, the standard experience of Job. Come on, I promised you four main headings. So consider the second, which is the unrealistic religion of victoryhood. The unrealistic religion of victoryhood. I'm speaking about here the, the theology of, of a spiritual idealism. There's a certain brand of Christianity that it depicts the normal Christian life as bright and smooth, as happy without darkness and bumpiness. Uh, an evangelical ministry may declare the Bible is the word of God and, and preach justification by faith and preach you must be born again and say when you're born again, you will experience a resurrection life. And when you're born again, there can be such a great stress on the difference of life once you become a Christian that it will make your life to be sparkling and sunshining and always pleasant and happy. The indwelling spirit will come he will enable you to overcome sins that previously mastered you. You can plant a victory flag on every spiritual battle hill that you experience. You'll have the wonderful light and leading of the Holy Spirit of God. You'll find your way through problems. You'll have guidance from God in your decision-making. You'll have a sense of self-fulfillment. There will be a satisfaction of your heart's desires. Oh, victory in Jesus! That will be your experience. Victory over your sins. Victory over sexual impurity issues. If you find yourself drawn toward forbidden fruit, whether it be 
Opposite sex attraction fruit or same sex attraction fruit, whatever it might be, when you become a Christian, those battles will be done. You will have victory in Jesus. In fact, in G.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he wonderfully addresses this in a chapter called These Inward Trials, which is an echo of the hymn that we just sang. It's worth reading that chapter. It's classic. He says, this is the way that the presentation is made of the Christian life. Now, in general terms, these great assurances are scriptural and true, and praise God they are. The new birth brings blessing. But it's possible to so stress them and to so play down the rougher side of the Christian life, the daily chastening, the endless war with sin and Satan, the periodic walk in darkness, as to give the impression that normal Christian living is a perfect bed of roses, a state of affairs in which everything in the garden is lovely all the time and the problems no longer exist. Or if they do... They have only to be taken to the throne of grace and they will melt away at once. This is to suggest that the world, the flesh, and the devil will give a man no serious trouble once he's a Christian, nor will his circumstances and personal relationships ever be a problem to him, nor will he ever be a problem to himself. Becker says this, such suggestions are mischievous, however, because they're false. He says, even though they may seek to be kindness, they're actually a cruelty. This, this unrealistic, unrealistic religion of victoryhood, giving a, a, a sunny forecast for our travels in the Christian life. You know how if you, you look on your, on your weather app and it says uh, you're traveling to Chicago for the 4th of July weekend, it's going to be all sunny. So you don't pack any blankets, you don't pack a flashlight. But if you leave without that, you're going to find you're going to have adequate resources if things become dark and cold and gloomy in a dark night, shuddering experience like Job went through. Christians encounter darkness and frigid coldness, and it can bring spiritual shock and distress if you're not prepared for it. Now, it's true. It's true. It is possible to give a lopsided impression of the opposite extreme, saying that the Christian life is a gloomy hell on earth. And it's only so bad because it makes us long for the glories of arriving at the Father's cabin. But I would say this, and Packer says this himself, he says, it's more dangerous to raise idealistic false hopes than to present possibly exaggerated Fears. If we're going to err, we should probably err a little bit on the side of emphasizing the bumpiness instead of the smoothness of the Christian highway to avoid disillusionment, to avoid having people turn back before they get to the cabin, the Father's house. So the scenario can be that a minister glamorizes the Christian life, making it sound as happy and carefree as he can in order to allure his hearers. But sometimes the result is that it's like the rocky ground hearer then of Matthew chapter 4, the parable of the sower. The word is received with joy, maybe even apparent conversion, happy spiritual honeymoon. And then assuming all my old headaches and my heartaches are behind me, but then eventually what happens? We return to that reality, and we think, I I must be lost, because nobody told me about 
this. In fact, Packer goes on and says this. Long-standing problems of temperament, of personal relations, of felt wants, of nagging temptations, they're still there. Sometimes, indeed, intensified. Read Romans 7 about that. God does not make their circumstances notably easier, rather the reverse sometimes. Dissatisfaction over wife or husband, or parents, or in-laws, or children, or colleagues, or neighbors recurs. Temptations and bad habits, which had their pre-conversion experience, they seem to have been banished for a time. Now they reappear. As the first waves of joy rolled over them during the opening weeks of their Christian experience, they had really felt that all their problems had solved themselves. But now they see it was not so, and that the trouble-free life which they were promised has not materialized. Things which got them down before they were Christians are threatening to get them down again. What are they going to think now? I must have taken a wrong turn. I have done something terribly wrong. But this, this is not the case. The normal Christian life is not the unshadowed and trouble-free life. And this is the standard experience of Job, first. The unrealistic religion of victoryhood, second. Now come on, thirdly with me. The blessed realism of the Scriptures. The blessed realism of the Scriptures. Listen to me. You see it in the life of Job. Job is a man like us as we're told in James. The normal Christian life, in it, God tests and disciplines his children. And he leads them through dark and bumpy stretches. And you know what? Listen to me, brother. Listen to me, sister. Sometimes really dark. And sometimes really bumpy. That's the way it was with Job. Consider four dimensions of this blessed realism of Scripture. First, consider how, how God's discipline often aims at general maturity instead of specific repentance. There's an old classic, it's classic to our family, movie, it's called Iron Will. Ever seen it? You've got to see it. It's a, it's a boy whose dad died as he was on a dog race, and the Iditarod was coming up, and to save the farm, he would try to, as a 16-year-old, win the Iditarod. And he was in his house one evening and the Native American trainer ripped him up out of his bed, dragged him down the stairs, threw him out in the snow in the front yard, locked the door, and all he could do in the frigid cold was go into the barn and sleep with the dogs. And mom was looking out the window with a sense of grief on her face. But the point was, he was being brought out of his childhood and being trained for manhood so he could win that race. He had to learn to deal with cold and, and snow and dogs and sleeplessness. He was being trained to be a man. Well, so it is. God's discipline often aims at a general maturity, training us to be spiritual men, spiritual women as opposed to merely children, and not going after specific repentance for a certain besetting sin, necessarily. It says in Isaiah 40 and verse 11 that God gathers his lambs in his arms. And that's what he does in our young Christian lives. He tenderly mothers Christian 
infants, bringing emotional joys and striking providences and answers to prayers. My son-in-law sent me off just this last week a, a YouTube of a guy named Beckett Cook who was a, was a homosexual. He was stuck in that sin and lifestyle. But you read and you listen about his testimony and how God brought all these sparkling, wonderful circumstances into his life and the Holy Spirit just exploded in his soul. And I was, I was running on the Zealand track as I was listening to it. And I just, I just began to weep as I was running, barely catch my breath because that's how God often works. And, and I even remembered from my own life when God worked in such a way, how kind he was in infancy. But then... We get older and stronger. Beckett Cook, in his testimony, and me too, and he takes us to a tougher school. He brings testings that expose us to as much pressure and discouragement as we can bear, doesn't he? And we learn what it means. No te- we have to tell ourselves, no temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man is getting so bad. But God is faithful. He won't tempt you beyond what you can bear. He always provides a way of escape. And for some of us right now in 2023, that's exactly the stretch that we're on right now. God is in the process with his children of building character, of strengthening faith, of filing sharp convictions in us. He brings temptations and hardships so that we will go on with God and finish the race that he's given to us. We begin to realize that Struggle is not the same thing as defeat. We realize that darkness is not the same thing as God's frown in our spiritual walk. I can remember about three and a half years ago after our second-born son, Calvin, lost his first-born son, Isaac. He had to hold him. He lived for five hours and his life leaked out of him, and it was such a dark time in Calvin's soul, but I was off, I remember on the driving range, Christie's driving range just north of Borculo, and Calvin sent me a text, and it was this song that God had given to his heart that night, and it's, it's called Highlands, and it says, so I will praise you on the mountain, and I will praise you when the mountain's in my way. You're the summit where my feet are, so I will praise you in the valleys all the same. No less God within the shadows. No less faithful when the night leads me astray. You're the heaven where my heart is in the highlands, in the heartache, all the same. And God had brought that home through His dark experience through the storm to teach him something new about his God. God God disciplines us. He's treating us as sons, Hebrews 12 says. So there might be the harvest of righteousness within us. So there can be these unrealistic expectations in carefree infancy of Christianity. There can be a sense in which we we, we, when we don't realize these realities that God takes us into these dark, stormy valleys that God has turned his back on us. Uh, maybe it means he's abandoned me and we can shipwreck our faith. We can turn back. I'm just saying, you're right. 
on the road. This is the P.S. of the Scripture. See, these things can work at cross purposes with our Heavenly Father's plans. Don't take the spiritual idealism and cause it to push you to turn away. He's making you to be a true man and a true woman of God because God's discipline often aims at general maturity instead of specific repentance. But consider secondly, as we're looking at this blessed realism of the Scripture, God's discipline often seeks our increased dependence on Him. He wants us to be dependent on Him. See, one priority goal of God's working in our lives is to have us draw near to Him for fellowship, to rely on Him for our every need. It says in Psalm 57, 1, there's a psalm writer, a man after God's own heart. Oh, Lord, my soul, my soul takes refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings, I will hide till the destruction passes. It's not such an impressive thing. He, he doesn't sound like a, a, a mighty Samson at this point. He sounds like a trembling little chick at this point. He wants to hide in the shadow of God's wings. That's what Job wants to do here in this circumstances. With, with this storm, he's, he's groping to find God. And frankly, that's what mature spiritual manhood is. It's fleeing from our self-sufficient independence. And it's finding shelter in the shadow of God's wings. It's, it's relying upon Him. God had put Job to flight so that Job would nestle in the bosom of His heavenly Father. And how does God accomplish this in our lives? You, we know, we know what we want God to do in our lives. We want God to bring continual sunshine and, and warm weather and light and brightness and encouragement. But God doesn't accomplish this kind of dependence upon He doesn't do it. He, he does it not by shielding us from the world and the flesh and the devil. He does it not by protecting us from burdens and frustrations and pampering us. He does it not by covering up problems in our temperament and personality. But instead, like we see with Job here, he rather does it. He makes us dependent on him by exposing and overwhelming us with our own sense of inadequacy so that we cling to him alone. I got this little grandson. His name is Bo. Bo's two. And Bo's phrase is, by myself. That's his phrase. By myself interesting when we had spent this spring some time in Florida with extended family on the panhandle and they had they had gone out and bow bow on the beach by myself by myself dad tries to grab his hand by myself he's so stubborn but as they were about a half a mile down the beach this squall line came in and this this thunder and this lightning and Bo was all about clinging to Dad, almost taking the circulation out of Dad's head by so clinging to his neck, not by myself. And this is the way that the Lord often works with us. God brings rough and threatening roads to us. It evaporates our self-confidence and we trust in Him. This is a school of God. Or consider thirdly how we're looking at this this way of God and the blessed realism scripture, 
God's discipline often leads us into the schoolroom of darkness. And we shouldn't be devastated when we get enrolled in that school. We shouldn't say, woe is me, or, 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 or curse God. See, God was che- teaching Job the great principle of 2 Corinthians 5-7. We walk by faith and not by sight. But God had put a veil on his providence. Job didn't know the prologue. He didn't understand why. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Job was so benighted, all his comforts were out of sight. And in this darkness, he was directed by the word of God alone. I can remember our family was in, in Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. It's a winding place. There's a place called, called Fat Man's Misery. You can't, you can't barely get your way through this tight hallway. And there's these sinkholes. And, and at one point, the guide turned out the lights. And it was total darkness. I mean, really total darkness. You couldn't see the hand in front of your face. and just made you tremble. And then he would start talking and telling us what we were supposed to do. We were, we were living by his word alone. I got really intimate with that guy in my own emotions, trusting in his word. And this is what God had done with Job at this time. As he says there in 23... 10. I look to the right, I look to the left, the north and the south. I, I don't know where, I can't see him. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. He learned to trust God in the dark. Manton says this. Dependence upon an unseen God, resolute adherence to a withdrawn God, is the flower and glory of faith. When we are left to a naked faith and a naked word or promise of God, yet then adhere to him and wait upon him for what is contradicted by sense, this is to believe in hope against hope. This is faith being the conviction of things not seen. So just consider depressed man among us depressed lady among us, depressed young person among us. The Lord, if you be a child of God, is cultivating a beautiful flower. Our patience and graces are never tried in a twilight, meaning things are kind of bad, as much as they are tried in an utter darkness. That's why James says, even there, consider it all joy, because God is making you to be gold. C.S. Lewis has that screw tape letters. And screw tape writes to his protege, Wormwood. Listen to this. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human looks around a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys him. This is ugly to the devil, but it's beautiful in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. And just just lastly here, as we think of this this point, the blessed realism of Scripture, 
Just consider how God's discipline often intends to reach and purge our corruptions. See, Job was not disciplined for his sins, but yes, he was purged of his sins. You ever had that, that, a pair of jeans and you wear them for a while and they get really baggy? And then you throw them in the wash, not because you think they're dirty, but you want them to fit better. So you, you, you toss them in the wash and there, there they fit better. But you didn't realize all that agitation creates the purging of the uncleanness. And you look at the water that's driven out of the washing machine and it's all dark. And you didn't realize what was in there. And so that's the kind of a thing that we see in the life of Job. The main purpose of Job's being tested was to prove the workmanship of God, that, that it was fine and fitting that Job truly feared God. He would be a display to the moral universe of God's craftsmanship and spiritual new birth, that Job was blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. But in that agitation process, Job was also purged, wasn't he? That all these chapters of the the, the machine of providence going back and forth. We see the, the dialogue and Job thrashing in his darkness. We see dormant sin being awakened and agitated out in, in irritation and hard words poured out against God. Dark and dirty words that the Lord has to say in chapter 38. Who, who, Job, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Or in 40 and verse 2, will the fault finder accuse God? Or in 42, 6, Job has to say, I repent in dust and ashes. He's convicted by God. He confesses and repented of his sin. And so in the Christian life, often God's main purpose is a, is a maturation. And through the trials, part of the process is that agitating loose of entrenched sins of the soul. Because he's... he's causes all things to work for the good. He's conforming us to his son, his son who is righteous and at the right hand of the father. He's like God and he's near God and he's making us like his son being near God. And there's that, there's that even that, that process, that agitation that John Newton talks about that we sang about when Newton says, I just ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace and might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But he did it in such a way, he almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favorite hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power he'd subdue my sins and give me rest. But instead of this, he made me feel the, the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry power of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more than this, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all my designs that I schemed. He blasted my gourds and he laid me low. And I said, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm in death? It is in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials... I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you might find your all in me. And for some sitting in these burgundy chairs, that's exactly what the Lord is doing now. Even maybe for some behind pulpits as well. This is the way 
that the Lord works. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Just, just lastly, let me give some fourth and final main heading, and that is some therapeutic counsels for sufferers. If you're on a smooth road right now, just bank what I'm saying, because eventually you will be on a bumpy stretch and you will be prepared. Consider first, remember the unfailing love of God on this bumpy road. Though you may lose the sight of God and the feeling of his favor, remember, he never loses you. Though you may have lost him, he knows the way you take. He's he's as near as your breath. Job's spiritual compass didn't seem to, to work. I can't find him, but he knows the way I take. I don't know why he's taking me this way. I don't know where I am, but he knows the way. He's leading me in it. Therefore, it's well with my soul. And, and there'll be doubts and whispers during this time, but he's withdrawn his presence from me. He's, he's deserted me. He, he, he's abandoned me. Unrequited love. We get the whispers that say your sin has brought you beyond the limits of God's love. He's left you behind for wrath and judgment. But Job in the scriptures unmasked this as lies. Manton says this, a withdrawn God is a merciful and loving God still. So remember his unfailing love. Secondly, remember the astounding reversals of God. In God's timetable, a dark night always precedes a bright morning. God just loves to bring light out of darkness. That's the way he displays his glory. He did it in the beginning. Remember, there was darkness over the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So it was dark. Anticipate God bringing light. Weeping may endure for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. This is the timetable of God. Job's dark night of spiritual struggle and wrestling ended, and there was a bright morning. Remember how Job, 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 Job ended up with twice double the wealth he had in the beginning, double the camels, double the oxen, children, double portion of God's sense of favor. You're on a bumpy road now? Lord Jesus says that we are not to let our hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. If we're not so, I would have told you. Continue on the way to the Father's house. Remember, it's God's way to carry mercies to his children on the tray of improbable and unseemingly contrary circumstances. At Cana, at Cana, Jesus called for water, but all the while he intended to give wine. At Bethany, Jesus delayed and he wept over Lazarus' tomb, but all the while he intended to raise him up. At Tyre, remember, he ignored that Syrophoenician woman, didn't speak a word to her, called her a dog. Crumbs. He gave her the healing she desired and the feast of the inheritance of our forefather Jacob. He hides himself behind a veil of contrary experiences, but he ever remains 
our Savior. He withholds no good thing from his children. Remember the astounding reversals of God. And just lastly, just lastly, remember the promised goodness of God. He does. He causes all things to work for the good of those who love him. Even in irksome darkness. It's so easy to forget God's overarching project, which is our good. What he's doing is a good thing, but he's taking me apart in this process. Manton says this, the taking of a watch apart to repair it, an unskilled man, when he sees every pin and wheel taken out, he will think it is the ruining. But to the skilled craftsman, it is the mending and the repairing of it. And so oftentimes we misunderstand God's plan. He's taking us apart. He's fixing us. So remember, what's good and best for us, what we think is good and best for us, is not always what's really good and best. Remember Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter sees Elijah, and he sees Moses, and he sees Jesus, and Peter declares, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let's just stay here and bask in this. We're going to build tents for you and then Moses and for Elijah. We can bask forever on this glorious mountaintop. But Jesus instead said, no, 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 that's not what's good for you. What's good for you is to get off this mountain, go down into this valley, and you're going to be exposed to the siftings of Satan. You're going to be exposed to Caiaphas' courtyard going to be exposed to a little maid's accusations. You're going to be exposed to your own miserable denials. You're going to have deep and dark nights of regret and weeping. But there's going to be a sweet restoration. Because in resurrection morning, you're going to hear, go tell my disciples and Peter. And I'll talk to you in Galilee. And I'll say, do you really love me, Peter? (laughs) Do you really love me? And When he's tried, he comes forth as gold because, you see, Jesus took him apart and he removed the the grains of pride and fear and cowardice out of him and put him back together and made him better. So he, as Matt taught us just this morning, he could be the, the point man, the captain in leading the warriors for the kingdom. And he fearlessly preached the gospel to the death. And now he's at the Father's cabin. Now he's on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. So, unbeliever, just just consider with us how if you've come here apart from the Lord Jesus, just consider how you've been brought here to this place, the, the house of Jesus. You're like the Syrophoenician woman. Just ask him. Ask him if he would have mercy on you. Ask him if he would heal you. And though it may not be something immediate, eventually as you cling to him and pray, you will eventually realize that you will have the healing like she had, that she desired for her daughter, and that you will have the the feasting of the child of God living in the house of God. So, So, Christian, if you're on the bumpy road in darkness. Don't turn back. Continue on, having heard this biblical P.S. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the way it's a light for our path and a lamp for our feet. And may it be that you would give us encouragement as we 
leave your house knowing that we are loved by our Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.